I invite you to take your Bible and open with me to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. And we're going to be picking back up in verse 14. Mark 6 verse 14. We're going to be reading Mark 6 verses 14 through 32. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You for Your Word. We ask that You would help us this morning to handle Your Word with reverence, with awe, and with an eye for Your Son. That You would help us by and through the power of Your Spirit at work in Your Word to see Your Son, to cherish Your Son, to honor Your Son, to love Your Son, because He is worthy of all that we have to give, because He has given us all that He has to give, namely Himself. And so, Father, help us this morning to cherish Him more deeply, even as we learn of Him more deeply. We pray this in His name. Amen. Mark 6, beginning in verse 14. And King Herod heard of it, it being the ministry of the disciples and the ministry of Christ. And King Herod heard of it, for his name had become well known, and people were saying... John the Baptist has risen from the dead, and that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying, he is Elijah. And others were saying, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. A strategic day came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, She pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, Whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you, up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry... Yet because of his oaths and because, he, because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. Immediately, the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles gathered together with Jesus and they reported to him all they had done and taught, and he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. They went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. This morning, what we see is the forerunner's race is finished. The forerunner's race is finished. In this morning's passage, we will see the fate of John the Baptist recounted for us for the first time in Mark's. Gospel. John the Baptist was last mentioned in Mark 2.18, 
when the scribes and the Pharisees made a passing reference of John's disciples. But he isn't actually mentioned as a part of the narrative beyond Mark 1. If we go back to Mark chapter 1, we see that John is baptizing and preaching in the wilderness. He's preaching repentance uh, and baptism for the remission of sins. And he is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, saying that there is one who will come who is greater than I. After that point of Mark chapter 1, John is not mentioned again until Mark 6.14. And while the text largely serves to tell us about the fate of John the Baptist, we should be careful not to miss the context here. Namely, going back to verses 7-13. through 13. In verses 7-13, through 13, which we studied last Sunday, we saw that Jesus calls His disciples together and then sends them out to the surrounding cities to go and preach the gospel to the surrounding cities. And in verse 14 it says, King King Herod heard of it. For his name, that is the name of Jesus, had become well known. And people were saying, that is people were talking. Because of the ministry of the disciples, as they went out to the surrounding cities of Galilee, the name of Jesus had become well known and people were beginning to talk. People were wondering who Jesus was. They were trying to identify Jesus. And we see in verses 30 through 32 that this narrative is picked back up. Again, we see, as is Mark's habit, this kind of hamburger narrative that you have the top bun of uh, the narrative of verses 7 through 13, that is, of Jesus calling and sending his disciples. And then you have the meat of today's message, which is John's fate. And then you have the bottom bun, which is the, the going back to that original narrative of what the disciples did. And so this morning, we want to pick up in verses 14 through 29 primarily. But what I want us to see is that the people are trying in verse 14 to identify Jesus. They're trying to make sense of who Jesus is, of how He is doing what He is doing. Some conclude, verse 14, that John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Verse 15, but others were saying he is Elijah and still others were saying he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. Now what we need to understand is that between Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, and Mark, which was chronologically speaking, the first book of the New Testament, we have about 400 years of virtual silence. 400 years of virtual silence between the Old and New Testaments. There were no prophets given. There were no apostles. There there was nobody sent to be a prophet for God for some 400 years. And so, as soon as someone comes onto the scene, namely Jesus, looking and talking with, looking uh, like a prophet, talking with authority, performing miracles, immediately their first thought is, we've got prophets again. There are prophets again. Maybe he's Elijah. Maybe he is the prophet of old. Uh, Maybe he is like one of the other prophets who came to tell people about salvation, who came to tell people about God and about condemnation for those who refuse to repent of their waywardness. Maybe He's one of these prophets. But Jesus cannot simply be Elijah or John. For in Hebrews 1, verses 3-5, through we read this of the Lord Jesus Christ. And He, being Jesus, is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. And He upholds all things by the power of His Word. 
when he had made purification of sins, he sat down to the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels has he ever said, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. In other words, Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than the heavenly beings and all who, uh, all who inhabit the heavenly realm. And so then, He is certainly better than Elijah and John. So it can't just be that He is Elijah or John back from the dead. He is better than them. I might say it simply like this. There is nobody like Jesus. Not John, not Elijah, not David, not Ezekiel, not Paul, not Timothy, nobody but Jesus is the center of history, the heartbeat of Scripture, and the author and perfecter of our faith. There is nobody like Jesus. You see, they were misidentifying who Jesus was. They were trying to make sense of it all. And that's where this story picks up. The first thing I want us to see this morning are the rumors. The rumors. Again, going back to verse 14. News of Jesus' ministry was so widespread that the palace had heard of it. Verse 14, And King Herod heard of it. The king of the land had heard of it. Just imagine for a moment if the White House had heard of and subsequently responded to the ministry of Mount Carmel Baptist Church. That's what takes place here. That's the equivalent of Herod having heard about Jesus. He is the king of the land, the president, as it were, of the land. And Herod Antipas, which uh, we talked about him briefly last week, had built his palace just four miles outside of Galilee. Herod Antipas was the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the one who sought to slaughter all of the male children in an attempt to slaughter Jesus in his infancy. Because even in Jesus' infancy, Herod the Great was jealous of Jesus because Jesus' name was being made well known. And here, King Herod, the the son of Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, was just as angry and jealous about Jesus. Jesus' name had become well known. And that's where we see the people begin to talk about who Jesus is. No doubt, this would have been viewed as a threat to Herod. He would have been concerned with the fact that Jesus' name was well known. The people would be going through the streets declaring the name of Jesus rather than the name of Herod, and that would have posed a problem to Herod. And we see the misidentification of Jesus that sparks this telling of the fate of John. Some were under the impression, again, that John the Baptist was from the dead. Others, that Elijah had returned from glory. But there are two reasons why the assumption that Jesus is John back from the dead is significant. The first reason is that John declared the gospel with great conviction. John was one who preached of repentance of sins. John is one who preached to men and women and children alike, telling them that they must turn away from their sins and trust in Christ. The ministry of Jesus had the very same flavor as that of the ministry of John. Namely, that Jesus went around telling people that they must repent of their sins. We hear today that it's unnice, it's unfriendly, it's unhealthy to call people sinners and to tell them to repent of their sins. Well, I want to be like Jesus, not like Joel Osteen. And so we're going to call people to repent of their sins. 
Because that's what the ministry of Jesus was about. Secondly, a prophet rising from the dead was believed by many to be a sign of judgment. Since Herod had had John murdered, they assumed that John had come back to exact judgment upon the evil rule of Herod. And that's why in verse 15, others were saying he is Elijah and others were saying he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But, verse 16, when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. And I don't know about you, but in my translation, in the NASB, it has an exclamation mark at the end of that. This was an exclamatory sentence. He's saying, John is back from the dead. You can sense the terror in Herod's voice. Now, what's significant about him being compared to Elijah? It is that Elijah's ministry was one of great power and truth. Elijah stood against the great multitude of people who would worship Baal. And Elijah stood for the truth. There was a great showdown on Mount Carmel, pointing the people to the glory and power of God. And Jesus' ministry thus far in Mark's Gospel has been and will continue to be throughout the rest of Mark's Gospel marked by authority, power, glory, and might. Verse 16. Herod immediately thought that it was John. That it was John back from the dead. He assumed that there was judgment coming for him. Yes, Christ will at the end judge the living and the dead, but that will come in the second advent, in his return. In this first, his first advent, Jesus came not to judge, but to save. Why? In John 3, verses 16 through 21, we see this. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment. That the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light. And does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. So Jesus came in his first advent, that is, in his incarnate form. He came not to issue final judgment. His very existence was and is judgment against sin and sinners. He came not to judge, but his very presence was a judgment, and Herod would have understood at least partly that that was the case. The second point that I want us to see this morning is the recap, getting into the bulk of the story now in verse 17. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. Now that word for, again, connects us back to verse 16. Verse 16 tells us that Herod, again, was probably afraid of John being back from the dead. John had been beheaded by Herod. And now we get the story of what happened. Herod was having a relationship with his sister-in-law. Herod Antipas was in a, a, an impure relationship with Herodias, his sister-in-law. He was doing that which was not lawful. And so in verse 18, it says, For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful 
for you to have your brother's wife. So the reason for which Herod had sent and had John put into prison was because John gave him the truth. Herod wanted nothing to do with the truth. He didn't want anything to do with that which was lawful. And so rather than, rather than taking heed to the word that John gave, he instead had John in prison. The sin that Herod committed, the one that John called him to give an account, was that Herod had taken his sister-in-law as his own wife. He had had relations with his brother's wife. And going back to Leviticus chapter 20, verses, verse 21, we see this. If there is a man who takes his brother's wife, it is abhorrent. That is, it is disgusting. It is repugnant and pure. It is abhorrent. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They will be childless. For something to be abhorrent is again for it to be disgusting, to be impure. And what do we know of those who are impure? Ephesians 5 verse 5. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Herod knew in his heart of hearts that he had no place around the kingdom of God. To him, he likely would have thought that he, that as afraid of John the Baptist as he was, it would have been better for John the Baptist to come and cast judgment upon him than for Jesus to actually be the Son of God. And so Herod wanted nothing to do with John. He wanted nothing to do with Jesus. And so rather than listening to the strong warning of John in verse 18, he puts him in prison. Now verses 19 and 20. Herodias, that is Herod's sister-in-law with whom he had these relations... Herodias had a grudge against him, him being John, and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. Herodias, Herod's sister-in-law, held a grudge against John. This tells us that at the very least, she was in on it. That is, if she was not the one who pursued and seduced Herod first. Whatever the case, at base level, Herodias was in on this sin. She was in on doing that which was unlawful. She was a part of this. She was a sinner too. Her anger was kindled against John. She absolutely hated him. In verse 19, it's, we're told that she wanted him to be put to death. She hated John so severely, so Deeply that she would rather see him die than have him tell her the truth about her sin. She would rather someone literally be put to death than be told about her sin. This hatred is severe. The antagonism is scathing against John. Herod was afraid of John, we see in verse 20. He was intrigued by his teaching, but he apparently never had the eyes of his heart enlightened because he remained perplexed and confused by the teachings. He certainly didn't put into action the teachings he heard from John because he didn't repent and believe. He had heard what John told. He had heard the preaching of John. And going back again to verse, eight, verse 17, rather than listening to John, he put John in prison. He heard him, but he didn't listen to him. There's a difference between hearing and listening. You may hear with your ears and not listen with your heart. You may hear with your ears the words that are 
coming out of my mouth and the words that are from Scripture, but you don't listen intently. You don't apply them. There's a difference between hearing and listening. And for Herod, he heard, but he didn't listen. He didn't put into action that which he heard. He did not believe. Herod saw in John that which he did not see in himself. Verse 20. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. Herod saw in John holiness and righteousness and purity. But when Herod would look at himself, all he saw was impurity. All he saw was unrighteousness and unholiness. Herod compared himself to John. And Herod saw how weak and frail and sinful, sinful he was in comparison to John. But yet, John saw himself as unfit to even stoop down and untie the thong of Jesus' sandals. So, if Herod saw himself as impure in the light of John's purity, he must find himself to be a worm in light of Christ. When we compare ourselves to Christ, we will necessarily see that we all fall short. We all need Christ to live and work vicariously through and in us. Verse 21. I want us to note in verse 21 that this is a strategic day. A strategic day came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in a dance, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, Whatever you ask of me, I will give to you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. In verse 21, we see that this was a strategic day. Again, going back up to verse 19, Herodias had a grudge against John and wanted to put him to death. She was waiting for her opportunity. She was just waiting for an opportunity to see John dead. She could not wait for this strategy to come full circle. In Proverbs 1, verses 10 through 19, we see that sinners are such. Proverbs 1, beginning in verse 10, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us, let us ambush the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol, even whole as they go down into the pit. We will find all kinds of precious wealth. We will go fill our houses with spoil. Throw in the lot with us. We shall, have, we shall all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet far from their path. For their feet run to evil and they hasten to shed blood. Indeed, it is useless to spread the bait and net in the sight of any bird. But they lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who gains by violence. It takes away the life of its possessors. In other words, Herodias was lying in wait for blood. She hated John. Because John gave her the truth, because John was honest with her and stopped tiptoeing around what everybody else saw, and John said, what you're doing is sinful and you need to repent and believe. John did that and so Herodias hated him for it. And she wanted him dead, thinking, if we only kill John, 
If only we put John off, if only we have John murdered, all of our problems will be solved. Well, obviously, she hadn't read the story of David. The story of David and Bathsheba. Whenever David had Bathsheba's husband killed, but the problems didn't go away. Nathan, a prophet, came and said, I know what you've done. The problems don't go away by us trying to fix our problems on our own. If I were to ask you this morning, how many of you have at some point in life been at, been at your wit's end? How many of you have tried to do everything your own way? You've tried to make everything work. You've tried to figure everything out, but you couldn't do it. You were in a situation where a loved one was in the hospital and you weren't getting answers. You were in a situation where there was more month than money and you didn't know how to scramble the money together. You were in a situation where you were so deep in sin and you were so guilty and you couldn't sleep at night. You were tossing and turning all night because you were afraid that someone would find out. You didn't know what to do or where to go. How many of us have been at our wits end? We didn't know what else to do and where else to go. My guess is every one of us has been. Such is the case with Herodias. She tried to figure it all out on her own. People like Herodias literally lie and wait for blood. That is, they long to see destruction. Sinners tear down, but Christians build up. Sinners destroy, but Christians construct. Sinners hate, but Christians Love. Sinners seek ruin, but Christians seek peace. Sinners plot wickedness, but Christians plan worship. Sinners prioritize self, but Christians prioritize God's glory. Which are you? Which are you? Are you more like Herodias trying to figure everything out on your own? Trying to just get everybody to stop talking about your sin? trying to do whatever it takes just to make yourself look good? Or are you finally coming to terms with the reality that I'm a sinner and I'm in need of a Savior? Which are you? You see in verses 21 through 24, a strategic day came when Herodias finally put her plan into action. And what we see is that Herodias sends her daughter out to dance, very likely seductively, because she's in front of Herod and his dinner guests. She's, she's in front of the king. She's in front of all of these rulers of the land. And so it's very likely that this was not a pure dance. Herodias sends her daughter out to do her dirty work for her. What a shame. What a shame this is. Look with me at verses 22 and 23. At the end of verse 22, the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, Whatever you ask of me, I will give to you. Up to half of my kingdom. The first thing that we should see in this is that Herod wielded his power for harm rather than for good. He overestimated the power that he had. In fact, we see this very same phrase, whatever you ask of me, I will give to you. 
we see the very same phrase said in reference to going to God in prayer. That whatever we ask of God, He will give to us. The first thing that we should see in this is that Herod had a big head. Herod had gotten fat-headed in his position of authority. And he said, I'm in control here. I'm the ruler of the land. I can do whatever I want. I've got all this wealth and all this power and all this authority and all this influence. Whatever you ask of me, I'll be sure to give it to you. He doesn't say, I'll try to give it to you in verse 23. He says, whatever you ask of me, I will give to you. Herod assumes the position of God. Herod is arrogant. The second thing I want us to see is that words matter. Words matter. We need to be careful what we say. We need to be careful what we promise. We need to be careful what we say of ourselves. Matthew 12, verse 36, But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. Our Lord explicitly tells us that our words matter. We need to be careful about how we speak, about what we speak, about our tone. Our tone matters. Our body language matters. Our words matter. And here, Herod spouts off whatever sounds good. And what happens? Well, go back up to verse 20. Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. Going back again to verse 17, Herod sent and had him in prison. So Herod's idea was, I'm terrified of John. I know that John could judge me because of his place in the kingdom of God, and therefore, I'm not going to kill him. I'm just going to imprison him. I'm just going to try to put him off somewhere. But here, in verse 22... He says, ask me for whatever you want and I will give it to you. Verse 23, whatever you ask, he doubles down and says, I am promising you, I am swearing to you, whatever you tell me to do, I'm going to do it. There's a danger in that. There's a danger in that. There's a danger in allowing everyone around us to determine for us what we do and how we do it. Herod gave a child authority over him. He gave a child who did not yet have any wisdom of life authority over him and said, you dictate what goes on. You set the pace. You tell me what happens. There is a danger in giving those who are unwise positions of authority. And that's exactly what Herod did. Herod allowed his brother's wife to have control over him. Herod allowed his brother's wife's daughter to have control over him. And yet, what's interesting is that in the background of all of this, John's sitting in prison because Herod wouldn't allow John to have authority over him. Do you see that? Herod was going to allow anybody who said what he wanted to hear to have authority over him. But anybody who came and said something that he didn't want to hear, he didn't want to have anything to do with that. So as long as you're telling me how nice I am and how handsome I am and how great I am and how strong I am and how powerful I am, you're on my team. But the moment you say something that rubs me the wrong way, the moment that you tell me that I'm doing something that I shouldn't be doing, I don't want to have anything to do with you anymore. 
That's Herod's response. That's Herod's heart. Augustine said, If you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you do not like, it is not the gospel you believe in, but yourself. I would submit to us that the same is true of counsel and preaching and even friendly advice. If we accept only that which we enjoy hearing, what will find us is that we have with the filter of selfish intent sifted out all that is worth heeding for the sake of digesting that which will make us fat with pride. We can get fat with pride very quickly. We can surround ourselves by people who will just tell us everything we want to hear. And before we know it, we're on the path to destruction because we've never been guided with any sort of wisdom. That's exactly what happens here. And notice what happens in verse 24. This little girl runs on to her mother and says, What shall I ask for? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in a hurry and asked to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was very sorry. The king regretted what he had done. He regretted spouting off whatever sounded good in the moment. I wonder if you've ever regretted some of the words you've said. Or maybe even regretted the way you've said them. Maybe the words themselves weren't all that bad. Maybe the words themselves were innocent, but you said them in a way, you, you, you posed yourself in a, in a certain way that your body language communicated something different than what you were trying to communicate with your words. And you regretted it. This word for felt sorry for, in verse 26, he was very sorry. He regretted it. He felt foolish for it. But that wasn't the end of it all. He didn't feel sorry for it and repent. Yet, because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. So he thought, well, I made a promise, I better keep it. So now he's feeling pretty high on the horse. He's thinking, I followed through with a promise. I'm a pretty good guy. But oh, if he could back up for a moment and be careful about what he said in the first place. Popeye the sailor man didn't make for a great theologian. He said, I am what I am and that's all I am. And Herod is essentially saying here, I've done what I've done and that's all I'm going to do. I'm not going to go back on this because people heard me. I'm not going to refuse her. I'm not going to do anything that would make me look bad. So verse 27. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. What an odd gift. A little girl asking for the head of a prophet. But that's what sin does. Sin is destructive. It is dangerous. It is foolish. 
It is stupid. Sin is deadly. That's what sin does. The final thing I want us to see is the response of the disciples very quickly in verse 29. When his disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. The disciples immediately moved to honor John. Their response is one of love for their brother in Christ. They serve him even in his death. John was faithful to the end. Really what we see here is the end of a ministry. We see the end of John the Baptist's ministry. That he's faithful to the end. (laughs) Again, look with me. Look with me at verse 18. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. All the way to the end, he was faithful. I've shared with you before, my basketball coach in grade school would tell us not to run to the line, but to run through the line. We don't just run up to the painted line on the end of the basketball court, but we were required to run through the line in order for it to be considered a full sprint. We don't just run to the line and say, well, I'm on my deathbed, I give up now. I'm 80 years old, I can retire now. I've been in church long enough, I can just start being a jerk now. I've earned my place here. I've earned my seat here. Try to move me. That's not the mentality we have. We're faithful to the end. And that's exactly what John did and the disciples, the apostles gathered around him and they were faithful to their brother to the end. There was no disunity among the body. No matter what took place, they loved one another because it was the gospel that united them. It was the gospel that kept them close. There is great joy in unity and that unity, beloved, is in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I've told you before and I'll say it again. Even if you and I don't see eye to eye on everything, even if you and I have nothing else in common, if we have Christ, we have everything. And we can have something in common with one another and love one another to the end and be faithful to each other even as we seek to be faithful to the Lord to the end. In verses 31 and 32, we get a glimpse of what that looks like to be faithful to the end. They gather together and they continue to worship and fellowship and honor one another. As we close this morning, I want to remind us of Paul's words in 2 Timothy 4, 7-8. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness with which the Lord, the righteous judge, will, will award to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all those who have loved His appearing. If I could give us a charge this morning, it would be may we be faithful to the end. May we be faithful to the end of a season, to the end of a ministry, to the end of life for the glory of God and for the good of one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word and ask that by the power of Your Spirit 
you would apply it to us so that it would not go out and come back void, but that it would go out and accomplish all that you sought for it to accomplish. Lord, would you break down strongholds if need be? Would you encourage if need be? Would you convict if need be? Whatever the needs of your people are, Lord, I don't know the needs of your people, but you do. And so would you apply your word to each and every one of us as is needed for our growth in Christ so that we might honor your Son and cherish Him and love Him and display Him before a watching world all the more in the days and weeks and months and years to come. Lord, keep us faithful to the end, whatever the end may be. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.